0: 7:30 a.m. I woke up in my double bed with the continuation of the dawn chorus. I'd already been semi kind of hearing while I was sleeping, and now heard it full into proper volume. I could see the dappling of the sun on the canvas as I climbed out of bed, over kind of climbing past my sleeping wife, tiptoed past my sleeping kids as I pulled on my jumper and my like warm kind of down jacket thing out the tent zip door and into the fresh, bright sunshine. Have a fresh day, clear blue sky, with the trees swaying and the spring sun coming through the leaves. I lit the fire for my family so they could find the fire and use it when they got up. I had a quick wee in the straw bale compost. I got on my bike, cycled off for around 30 minutes to the short train transfer to get to my work IT day job. I hoped the shower work and the shirt that I kept there, like, you know, a supply of clean shirts, wouldn't give away the smell of wood smoke and that no one would notice the splinters and the remnants of dirt in my fingernails. Welcome to the story of 156 nights under canvas as a family from April 2012 through to September, primarily in two bell tents with three kids, aged four, six, and 16. Welcome to the story of a forest family, part one. Welcome to Nige Heartbeats, Series 1, Episode 2. This is A Forest Family, Part 1. In a couple of uh, episodes, I'm going to take you through the story of when we as a family lived in the woods for six months. This episode is kind of the uh, kind of pre-story almost. So this is kind of the context of where we were at the time and how we came to come across this crazy plan. How we started to search for somewhere to live. How we made an early hit and then sort of struck that agreement how we then started to plan and how we planned to start. And I'll get us pretty much up to a moving in day. And um, to give you a sort of teaser for that, I mean, that night, that first night, I seriously thought that we were going to have killed our kids on the first night of this stupid dumb project. The wind was just crazy. And I just thought the trees were going to come down and crush us on <laughs> first night. So there we are. This is the story of a forest family. This is part one. Part two, then, will probably be the next episode, which will be the experience of living in the woods and and for for a few months how it went and how we started to hit some significant challenges. And part three will then be how we had to have quite a significant shift uh, in in the way the summer went, but still carried on. And we got some really good uh, experiences and stories out of that second part two. I'm going to get confused between the parts here, I? but hopefully it makes sense. And then I'll wrap up with kind of learnings, um, kind of, you know, our perspective on it, our memories of it, how we've asked the kids kind of recently what they remember about those days, and, uh, you know, a bit of a retrospective on it, really. So I hope you enjoy the story. This is A Forest Family. Let's carry on telling you part one. Okay, so context first. Where we were at the time. We were living in a town. Uh, In Sussex, we were living in a townhouse, very much in the middle of town, just a few minutes from uh, high street. um, Four bedroom house, therefore, and we were renting, so we were spending a lot of money on rent. It was kind of, what did I say, crippling us? I don't know about crippling us. I was earning quite well, you know, so we weren't in any way poor or anything. I'm I'm very aware of my privilege, but you know, it was a bit of a struggle month to month, and we were aware of how much money was going into the rent, and that always annoyed us. But you know, we didn't have the option of trying to move to buy a house or anything. So there was a money thing, um, but you know we had snippets of nature time with our kids and as a family. We went to festivals, kind uh, festivals, music festivals, and we went camping a lot, camping, climbing. Um, but you know, oh my God, the the endless process of of getting everything ready, packing the car on like the Friday night, get get to where we were going, set everything up. Only then, a couple of days later, take it all down again, bring it all back in the car, unpack it again at the house, put it all in the cupboard, maybe even just for the, until the next weekend, you know. It was just, it just, like, the enjoyment was so good of whatever we're doing, but the, just the work and the, the kind of um, arduous hassle of getting everything in and out just felt like such a nightmare, and it felt like something was wrong with that process, you know? <laughs> and then three main things happened. So number one, I was taking my kids to a playground uh, on, a, on a Saturday or something, and on the way to the playground, we had to go through some woods to get there. And when we are going through the woods, the kids were playing on some logs, and playing in the stream and playing with some leaves and playing a bit mud maybe and i found myself kind of saying come on guys come on we need to get get along come on chop chop let's let's move on now but trying to hurry them along because you know i had this destination in mind and which was a man-made playground and often we'd found there weren't any other kids at this other playground it was it was like you know not used really and i thought to myself what the hell are you doing why are you like trying to drag your kids away from playing in nature you know what 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 the hell are you doing secondly similarly i found myself nagging my kids uh teenagers and little kids to remember to flush the loo you know once they even just once they've done a wee and i thought to myself what the fuck what what are you doing why are you hassling your kids why and why do we pay so much water pay so much to get clean water processed just so we can flush away a wee and as well to some extent, but they're both resources, really. And I already started to understand the idea of composting. And because I knew, you know, like in a previous household, maybe you know, weed into the compost bin, for example. Um, and I thought, why the hell am I nagging my kids to, to you know about flushing the toilet? This is just ridiculous. Something is wrong with the way we're living, you know, it just <laughs> it just seemed dumb. And then my the wife and I had a dream, you know, we did want to learn some life skills and have a future. Which involved animals and the with nature, a bit of self-sufficiency, solar power, um, being able to properly cook from fire and on fire, not just like campsite bacon, you know, but actually survive by cooking on fire. And to some extent, woodcraft, forestry, you know, chopping down trees, that kind of stuff. So there were things that we wanted to learn. So the idea was hatched that we needed to find somewhere to live. We needed to find a plot of land of some type, and we would live in our bell tent. We had it for festivals already. We bought it, I think maybe just a few months or you know, the year before, for the season before. We love living in the bell tent. We thought it was a really nice f- space. A year it would be lovely, but we had the bell tent. And so we decided that we needed to find somewhere to live in our bell tent for for the summer, for six months. That's what we thought. An inspirational piece to point out at this uh, stage in the story was a book by a guy called Nick Weston. Um, The book is called The Treehouse Diaries. And uh, basically the story is I I found this book, it kind of um, spoke to me in a charity shop. Um, Sorry, Nick, I have explained that to you in the past that I've bought it for about 99p in a charity shop. But, you know, hey, Um, I should probably go back and buy a full copy now for you to get there better income from that but i i bought it it kind of spoke to me in the charity shop i took it home and learned it and i loved it and it was a big part of inspiration for what we did so in this treehouse diary story nick um happened to also live in sussex and happened to also live in the woods for six months in his case he built a treehouse and his uh, mission was quite um quite about foraging and and hunting and self-sufficiency um as well as the experience of like living you know in a, in a forest environment um And it's a really good tale, really good um, story. He he provides a lot of great photos and diagrams and schematics and things of the things he built, things he did um, with various experiments, um, as well as lots of knowledge that he shared. Um, One of the very cool things he shared was uh, eating a roadkill badger. Um, So that's quite a funny part of the story. But other things were really interesting um, generally and and gave us a lot of information and stuff that we enjoyed. So I highly recommend you uh, look for that. And um, yeah, so that's Nick Weston and Treehouse Diaries. You can also look him up on Hunter Gatherer Cook because uh, on Instagram or their website, because they now run this business to um, really encourage people to connect with um, foraging and with um, you know, hunter gatherer instincts of, of kind of deer and learning to butcher deer and things like that. So I've done a deer butchery course with him; it was very really cool. And they do a really, uh, really good business doing stuff. Part of his uh, book, The Treehouse Stories, involves him eating a roadkill badger that he finds. And it's quite a funny story about how horrific badgers are in terms of the smell as you're preparing them. Um, but you know, it used to be eaten quite a lot, um, certainly in the, in the UK. But anyway, so <laughs> I digress. Point was that um, this Treehouse Diaries from Nick is a really good book and very interesting experiment he did. And was a major inspiration for obviously what we wanted to do with our kids. So um, Nick had been in the uh, woods in Sussex. He, I think, had had knew somebody who had some land or or knew a farmer or something. So, um, uh, you know, that that was part of our idea was to try and find farmers that would have some wood or fields that we could, you know, ask to um, you know be resident on for six months. So, uh, we we knew a few people that were in the farming community. So, we we did sort of shop around. We did look at one. of land that a friend of ours had a farm and and it just it wasn't going to work because the access was really bad it would just be a real hassle to get across a few fields every time you going to and from um you know just generally um but obviously with, with kind of you know wife and kids as well as transporting our stuff there and stuff you know you want it to be sort of compatible with daily life rather than across a few fields with four gates or something um so but then we hit upon the idea of campsites and whether any campsites in the area were looking, would well, be interested in having a warden. Because um, we'd, we'd spent a lot of time camping up in Peak District and Wales and stuff, and we knew there were some campsites around us in Sussex, and it turns out there were about four within about 50 miles of us, because we wanted to still be near our existing commitments with the kids for their preschool and my work and things. One I got in touch with, which was, uh, turned out to be kind of a very basic campsite, just really kind of a field, and the lady already had a guy in a caravan through the sort of peak season. And she wasn't interested in having a family, and um, and yeah, for us it didn't feel it would quite work either. Um, and then we talked with um, WOWO, which are really good friends of ours now, and they'll come into the story again later in part three. Um, but we and we 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 I think we'd already stayed with them because I think we'd must have already stayed with them. I thought well, maybe we were just aware of them and went to visit, and it was very cool. But it was a very big campsite. Um, we visited them sort of you know, off-season, but you could see the scale of it. There was many hundreds of people campsite, and even though there's a lot of benefits to Do-by-Whale. We'll talk about them more later. So, you know, it's great to meet them, and it was a possibility. But then we fell um, with an early hit with another campsite that replied to uh, an email letter. letter sent And there must have been an email. Nobody does letters still. It wasn't that long ago. Um, and there was a campsite that had their third season coming up. They'd already done two seasons. This is their third season and they needed a warden this time, and it was very handy that I happened to have emailed them because they said yes, that would be very interesting. So um, we booked, I think on a Sunday, to go and meet this guy Paul, and we went to look around this five acre wood. Cows were certainly a feature of wild boar Wood and the surrounding fields. Wobbo Wood is a five-acre wood in Sussex, quite near Horsted Canes, as a little village, just in the outskirts of uh, Um, You can look it up. Um, I think it comes up Wobbo Wood, but otherwise it comes up probably because of um, the campsite, which was called Eco Camp at the time. I think now is renamed and part of Pegs and Pitches brand. Um, so you know you can find it because then you can look at Google Maps aerial view. It's quite cool to see this like little triangular, sort square wood. Um, And it's part of an estate which is owned by a dairy farmer and cheesemaker farm called High World Dairy. Shout out to uh, Mark and Sarah and all the team there. Make really amazing halloumi as well as lots of other nice stuff. Um, So yeah, this this, um, farm focuses on cheese production really. They have a dairy herd and so it's part of the field uh, collection that they have the dairy herd in. And they have this five acre wood. is right next to the uh, bluebell steam railway that runs through sussex which is a really cool steam railway seen lots of films as well Uh, it was in the daniel Radcliffe women in black thing for example Um, and two years before we got in touch and met them uh, these guys from brighton had been shopping around looking for farmers that had some uh, woods, woods available that they could use to set up what they called eco camps so they wanted to have glamping um on a very small scale so just kind of like 10 bell tents for example in a pretty area Sussex woods I don't know if they particularly looked for bluebells and for steam trains but that's what they found so they'd already run this uh, for two years and it'd been quite an overhead for them um, traveling back and forwards from Brighton on the Friday night to kind of meet people and get them checked in, and then on the Sunday to be there to clear up and you know clean the tents out and things like that. And they wanted to you know really expand and, and progress things, so they'd already been thinking about a warden. And it just so happened that my email arrived just at the right time, and they said, "Oh, this is quite cool. There's a guy who's uh, you know uh, got a family as well, which is fine by us, but you know they're, they're happy to actually live on site. I mean that'd be amazing from a warden perspective to have someone live there." and we were sort of obviously saying that we had our own kit and we'd bring our own tent and we would be fairly self-sufficient so we wouldn't need much from them so uh the plan was hatched so we met paul at these woods and we had a walk around it was uh, i think it was sort of january time um so it was quite you know a bare wood uh, in the middle of winter uh, quite frozen underground, uh, you know, on the ground, you know, frosty ground kind of thing. Um, but even then, you know, the wood felt really nice, you know, it felt like a really nice space because it wasn't really big; it was only five acres. Um, and he kind of took us around the the space that they already had some platforms for the the ten bell tents that they had, and they had a central fire pit, and they had a bit of a um, toilet building, and they had a bit of a um, storage kind of you know hut thing. And um, yeah, it was a sort of a 100-yard uh, walk, 100-meter walk across the fields to get to the woods, so it wasn't too far off the road. There was parking at the main road, um, which again you can see if you look at Google Maps. I'll try and put some photos up on Instagram as well. And we walked around this woods MRI, and it was it was lovely. You know, really felt like something could happen, something could work here. And it felt quite obvious that the campsite was in one corner, if you like, quite near the railway. And the nearest point to the road was a sort of the opposite corner in this sort of triangle square shape woods. And that that would be pretty good for us to locate ourselves because it was right by the road. So handy for us. I mean, it wasn't right by the road. I mean, it was the nearest point to the road. But uh, it meant we would have a bit of space and distance from the campus. So the campus could be in the other corner of the woods and we would be you know, close by. Um, but you have enough privacy in our own space that we could do our own thing as well. Then there's really two stages left, so we had to meet the other owner because there was two owners in the campsite business, uh, which is Hugh. Um, And so we met with him and got on really well. I think it was over a couple of beers of Pints of Harvey's in Brighton, I think, at a pub. I seem to remember. Um, But I might be wrong, might have been a second meeting in the woods. But we met um, Hugh, and that was really good. He was a very enthusiastic Australian guy. And um, um, Paul was quite a sort of gentle, softly-spoken older guy from Brighton. And these two were these business partners that were running this campsite business um, and they, they this year as well they also opened the second site which is in Hastings or near Hastings or near Battle um, on the south coast and it was, it, was qu- it was quite new and it was quite big it was slightly bigger and um, it was going to take quite a lot of their effort this year so they were quite helpful handy they were quite grateful for the idea of me and um, and my family and, and my wife being kind of able to look after this wild wood campsite for them pretty much and we had to meet the landowner so then we went, went to meet Mark and he was the landowner and he was quite happy with the idea Um, and uh, I think he sort of raised his eyebrows a bit at our location that we'd chosen, that we'd chosen this corner of the woods, but he didn't really say anything at the time, which came back to haunt us later. So at this point then, we really started to plan and we planned to start. First was the logistics of moving in and the logistics of moving out. So in terms of moving in, uh, I knew we had to build platforms, put up our tents, move in what we wanted to take with us make sure we had a toilet facility, um, water, figure out what we're doing about water supplies. And we you know, we planned to have a herb garden, uh, which really didn't happen in the end, but we'll come to that as well. And the logistics of moving out. So we were in a four-bedroom townhouse with a very full loft um, of whole family collection of stuff and loads of clothes of the kids and my records and decks and loads of stuff. And this is when I met um, a very good friend, James, at a storage facility nearby, so like a self-storage place. And as a part of booking a room, and starting to move stuff in, we got talking and, and explained what we were doing, and he loved it. And James really introduced me to micro adventures as well, um, and you know I had lots of good adventures, which is mentioned on the Forest Family blog. Um, but he was very supportive and very help, helpful, and it's very good to have that kind of contact at a storage place. And um, you know, lots of other adventures with James as well. And ironically, James knew Nick Weston as well, so that was quite a, an interesting coincidence. Um, so it was quite good and so yeah so the logistics moving in logistics moving out all during which you know we were still a busy family I was still working uh, a day job in IT and um, you know the, the idea was to plan how would that life continue when we were living in the woods March 2012 was beautiful. It was quite cold at times, but it was very clear. It's clear skies, very crisp, and you know, a great month of weather for breaking ground, which really meant um building platforms. So I had to transport some um well, I had to go and buy some wood panels to be the floor of our pieces. The the camps I already had theirs and I need to get you know enough for mine. And actually a friend of mine, shout out to Michael who runs a supplies business for agricultural country garden type stuff? He had some very good wood panels uh, that were external grade ply stuff. So rather stupidly, I went to all the effort of um, borrowing a van. I think I might have hired a van, driving to Buck's, uh, picking up the wood from him, driving all the way back to Sussex and to the woods. Then we wanted to I'd hit on this idea of using pallets as a sort of pre made structural. Um, strong structural thing for the, for the frame of, of the flooring rather than building my own from timber pieces. So there's a wood yard um, in Sussex like, that has recycling timbers from building companies and stuff. So they had the large pallets that are used for plasterboard generally. So I got I think a pound each for those and got about 20 delivered um, to this field which raised some eyebrows from the neighbours because you know we had a lorry turn up and we were chucking pallets over the fence into a field which obviously looks a lot like fly tipping um i don't think anyone actually questioned it they stopped and they looked but they didn't actually question it but yeah so we had these large um pallet frames and then the ply boards and i had to build it level so we were then using a chainsaw that i borrowed from the campsite to cut um tree trunks i guess you would call them you know logs that were pretty pretty reasonable diameter like 20 centimeters or something and cutting them to size so that we could then have you know a, a level platform propped up on these log ends so that you were off the ground which is good for airflow and you know water and stuff um and but more importantly you can then level it so i did it mostly at weekends did, did go there after work a few times in evenings because you know when the light was okay and doing it in the dusk and it was really good fun. I never built something, you know, with so much kind of a plan and effort behind it. Well, I built some things in our country garden, I suppose, but this, this, you know, was going to be our, our home, you know. And the other critical thing was digging a hole that would become the compost loo hole and building a uh, structure that would be the kind of toilet structure, which, again, I used these large pallets, um, cladding it where I could with, like, floorboards that I had and, like, decking wood. And lining it with uh, hardboard that you'd use for, like, you know, the backs of IKEA wardrobes, kind of thing. And uh, that's probably one of the most th- things I'm most proud of. That toilet structure it was so cool. It was an excellent building, and I was very really proud of it. And it was, you know, very cozy to use. And the wife, particularly, really misses that. She really loved that, which is a good result. So, yeah, through March. 2012, into April 2012, went really well. The weather was great and dry and bright and cool. We, we often spent days as a family there the weekend and, um, you know, really good. And, um, you know, it all felt amazing. We were sort of clearing out the house and, and starting to get everything into storage and, and decluttering a lot. And, um, you know, in that sense, things were, were going quite well. There was a difficult part of life here was that we had our eldest teenager who was 18 at the time. And they were going to move out and live with their partner, so that was you know tough, and it was part of turbulent times anyway with with teenagers and, and family life. But you know that that happened as well, and that got them settled. And then we were able to really start to look towards the uh, the point where we would leave this uh, rented bricks and mortar house behind, and we wouldn't be renting anymore. And it would be uh, scary, but but cool. Um, so we we basically got towards the point of I think it was April the twenty fifth. 2012 where my book records that we actually had to go to someone's birthday party during the day um, maybe even in London um, but it, that made, I don't know quite where it was, and that we were then planning to spend that night as the first night in the woods so we had stuff all kind of lined up and I think we popped back to the house to pick up the last few things and then we went for our move-in night. I'm gonna cover that more in the next episode just just really to say that um, basically the the journey then started there right so we were then living in the woods we had to get rid of the house so we had the sort of final cleaning and final clearing and stuff that's boring stuff i won't really cover that much more and um uh we then had to yeah start getting into this life of ourselves as a family in the woods but also then this campsite and the first weekend where we had paid campers come was quite striking because we had uh, two groups and they don't do a lot of group hire at campsites anyway, and this really helped to highlight why not. So the first group was a stag group of about ten guys, ten lads, in the sort of twenties, and then there was an unrelated hen party of about twenty ladies um, that were both staying there. <laughs> so it was a recipe for disaster. It didn't didn't get too badly in that sense. Really, the ladies were really really organised. You know, they basically had like a really complicated tea party with loads of food and loads of. Um, prosecco and, and stuff the lads were just like stereotypical disorganized lads who basically came with iphones to use as torches and a shitload of carling um they proceeded to like enthusiastically burn all of my stocks of wood that i built up mostly kindling and they just kept burning the kindling rather than anything thicker and used their iphones as torches therefore they had no phone battery at all the next day and missed their morning alarm calls uh, so they didn't go off for the day for paintball, so they just paid me to go and get more beer and more bacon for them. But, you know, that that's a bit of an anomaly because most of what you'll hear now is the rest of the story in part two and beyond is uh, as you go through into May and turn into the summer, it was a much more of a family campsite that we were hoping to run and ourselves as a family of five um, with a teenager and two kids, uh, myself and my wife, having an adventure in the woods. And pretty soon, and a lot of that part will be how about how the rains came and came and came. So the next episode, part two, will tell you more about the first night, uh, how I kept my day job working without anyone knowing what I was doing. Uh, I'll talk about our evening meals and our cooking approach. I'll give you a uh, fascinating insight to managing campers and how there is a dynamic of about a third of campers that you probably won't like. Uh, I'll talk a bit about a personal thing for me, which was some jealousy I had at my eldest born, who was connecting very well with other dads at the campsite when I was busy working and, and trying to sort stuff out and not having time to spend with them, which was you know, a little tough. But that was offset very much by the brave spirit of my youngest born, who was just having a time of, of their life and just having a fantastic time at such a young age. And I'm so proud of, of that experience that we gave them. And you'll hear a lot more about the rain, the mud, and the mud and the rain and probably a bit about the rain and some of the mud. And you'll hear about our neighbours, and you'll hear about our eviction. Our eviction. Our eviction from the woods. (laughs) So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, let's uh, hope to see you back soon for part two. Thanks for listening to Naji Heartbeats, A Forest Family Part 1. If you'd like to leave me a message with any questions, I'll answer them in uh, subsequent episodes. Um, So if you've got any curiosities of what I've said so far, or if you have a question about um, something, aspect of living in the woods um, or campsites or anything like that that you've heard that you think I may or may not address in the coming episodes, please let me know. You can leave me a voice message if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Nigel Heartbeats, or you can find me on Instagram uh, under um, ForresterNige. Okay, uh thanks and uh, look forward to hearing from you um and that you enjoy the next episode.